Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here today's top stories. Violence swept across the nation this past weekend. Multiple people killed in a number of shootings from Illinois to Washington state. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets Chinese leader Xi Jinping. What the two talked about and why some experts call it a win for the Chinese Communist Party. A top Democrat joins Republicans' calls for the FBI to clarify, is President Biden under investigation? Democrats say the FBI says no, while the GOP says otherwise. We'll bring you what we know. President Biden and GOP candidate Ron DeSantis are both in California today. Biden speaks to climate issues and DeSantis sends a unique challenge to the California governor. And a judge today restricting what former President Trump can say about the Mar-a-Lago investigation. Trump can no longer talk openly about evidence in the case. Search and rescue crews, including the U.S. Coast Guard, are in the North Atlantic working to find a missing tourist submarine near the wreckage of the Titanic. Ocean Gate Expeditions, which owns and operates the submersible vessel, says it went missing Sunday off the coast of St. John's, Newfoundland. Less than two hours into its voyage, the vessel lost contact with the ship it launched from. The U.S. Coast Guard believes the submersible is approximately 900 miles east of Cape Cod and 13,000 feet deep, making the search very difficult. Five people are on board, two crew members and three passengers, who reportedly paid as much as $250,000 each. British business executive Hamish Harding is reportedly on board, according to a social media post by Action Aviation, where he serves as chairman of the board. Harding was a passenger on Blue Origin's June 2022 space flight. The U.S. Coast Guard is deploying sonar buoys to detect any sounds deep underwater. Ocean Gate Expedition says it's exploring all options to bring the crew and passengers back safely. A number of shootings over the weekend left people dead across the United States. This includes two attacks during public gatherings and and an attack on law enforcement. In the Chicago suburb of Willowbrook, at least 23 people were shot in a parking lot during a Juneteenth celebration early Sunday. One person was killed. Authorities said multiple people fired shots into the crowd. It was reported to us that we had five uh, uh, gunshot victims, um, escalated to a box alarm. Uh, All in all, we had 10 patients, two critical, transported to four uh, local area hospitals. Hundreds of people were gathering at the parking lot for the celebration overnight. The names and conditions of the victims were not released. We were all just out, and next thing you know, shots just got to going off, and... Everybody ran and, yeah, it was was chaos. A motive for the attack wasn't immediately known and no one is arrested as of Monday afternoon. Also on Sunday, 10 teenagers were shot during a party at an office building in St. Louis, Missouri. One of them was killed. Authorities said a minor who had a handgun was in police custody as a person of interest. The victims ranged from 15 to 19 years old. And over in Washington state, two people were killed and two others were injured during a shooting near a music festival on Saturday night. Shooter continued to shoot randomly into the crowd and the suspect was eventually taken into custody. The shooting took place at a campground where many were staying to attend the Beyond Wonderland Electronic Dance Music Festival in Grant County. 
On the same day, over in Pennsylvania, one state trooper was shot and killed, and another one critically wounded. The gunman drove into the parking lot of the Lewistown State Police Barracks and opened fire on patrol cars before fleeing. We were able to identify him, and we immediately began a search. We activated a major case team and other department assets to include one of our helicopters to aid in that search of attempting to locate Mr. Stein. Lieutenant James Wagner was shot and critically wounded after encountering the shooter several miles away. Later, Trooper Jacques Rougeau Jr. was ambushed and killed. The shooter was eventually shot and killed. A motive was not immediately known. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Today is Juneteenth, a day commemorating the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. It became a federal holiday in 2021. Juneteenth is a combination of the words June and 19th. It commemorates the day in 1865 when a Union general arrived in Galveston, Texas to inform a group of enslaved black Americans of their freedom. It came after the end of the Civil War and two years after President Abraham Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. Juneteenth has long been a regional holiday celebrated in the South with social gatherings, church services and other events. This year, at least 28 states plus D.C. will legally recognize Juneteenth and give state workers a paid day off. Connecticut, Minnesota, Nevada and Tennessee have made Juneteenth a permanent public holiday for the first time this year. As the U.S. tries to ease tensions with China, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke to the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, this morning in Beijing. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. So the meeting between Secretary of State Antony Blinken and China's Xi Jinping was not announced until just 45 minutes before the two men shook hands. The Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the meeting was candid and in some places constructive. I came to Beijing to strengthen high-level channels of communication, to make clear our positions and intentions in areas of disagreement, and to explore areas where we might work together. Secretary Blinken was the first U.S. Secretary of State to visit China in the past five years. And this meeting comes as U.S.-China tensions are at an all-time high following a spy balloon incident a few months ago and, of course, recent military encounters both in the air and on the seas. But Blinken says the U.S. is trying to... De-risk, not decouple. And he adds... There are many issues on which we profoundly even vehemently disagree. But the United States has a long history of successfully managing complicated, consequential relationships through diplomacy. And Blinken says he raised human rights concerns to Xi and talked to him about prerogative actions by China in the Taiwan Strait. But he also said that despite him calling for it repeatedly, China still refused to reopen military lines of communications with the U.S. Meanwhile, some China experts told us that this meeting was a win for the Chinese Communist Party. We have been basically begging the Chinese to give us access to their military so we can have military-to-military dialogue. Again, I think we have just really lost the ball on what is important. China's trying to strip mine uh, the U.S. economy, and there's no indication that we're actually willing to protect it. Meanwhile, President Biden reiterated over the weekend that he would like to talk to Xi Jinping in the coming months. But when asked today if a time has been set, the White House says there's nothing to announce just yet. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. 
Republicans have been pushing the FBI on the Biden family business dealings. Now, a top Democrat is joining those calls, intending to clear Biden's name. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. Congressman Jamie Raskin, who is the ranking Democrat member on the Oversight Committee, wants the FBI to confirm in writing that President Biden is not under federal investigation for bribery. Of course, this is related to that ongoing probe from the Oversight Committee into the Biden family. That probe alleges that the Biden family received over $5 million from a foreign national to influence policy decisions. Now, the entire Oversight Committee has had a chance to view that bank document, but ranking member Raskin and Republican Chairman James Comer had a closed-door meeting with the FBI. In that meeting and from that meeting emerged two conflicting accounts of what the FBI has to say about the current investigation. Raskin said the DOJ relayed that they found insufficient evidence to warrant escalating this assessment to a preliminary or full investigation and it was closed. Bill Barr has said it's not true. It wasn't closed down. On the contrary, it was sent to Delaware for further investigation. Former Attorney General Barr might be aware of something that I'm not aware of, um, and that, that's fine, but that's not inconsistent in any way with what we were told by the FBI, which was they, they uh, shut down that particular investigation. And this contrasts from what we've heard from Republican Chairman James Comer, who said that the FBI personally told him and Senator Chuck Grassley that this document, the, 10, the FD-1023 document, is related to an ongoing investigation. That according to Bill Barr, then Attorney General, they got the Form 1023, they took it seriously, but they didn't look into it. They just passed it along to the U.S. attorney in Delaware. Raskin now wants the FBI to rectify those contradictions, providing a statement of clarification no later than this Friday. In other news, the FBI is up to face even more scrutiny this week as the House puts more attention on the Durham report. John Durham is expected to testify before two House panels on his report into Crossfire Hurricane that looks at the contacts between former President Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia. Durham will first testify behind closed doors to the Intel Committee starting tomorrow. Then that second hearing, which will happen on Wednesday, is before the Judiciary Committee, and that is open to the public. We will be following those hearings closely this week. It will be a very busy week for the Intel and Judiciary Committees. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. In the presidential race, President Biden and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis visited California on Monday. The two 2024 candidates delivered speeches and held campaign events in Northern California. NTD's David Lamb reports. California, the Golden State, has a huge economy and population that affects the rest of the U.S. Now, on Monday, President Biden arrived in Silicon Valley and went through this street on a motorcade to a salt marsh nearby. He delivered his remarks on his energy and environmental related plans. President Biden arrived on Monday and expected to stay for a few days. He was joined by California Governor Gavin Newsom and Congresswoman Anna Eshoo at the Lucy Evans Baylands Nature Preserve. The president talked about combating climate issues, creating good-paying, clean energy jobs, and protecting the environment for future generations. Starting tomorrow, the Department of Commerce will launch the first and largest competitive climate resilience regional challenge to provide $600 million to coastal and Great Lake communities 
that are building projects to protect against impacts of climate change from sea level rise, flooding, and storm surge. Biden also mentioned a $2 billion investment in upgrading the country's electric grid and the first ever White House summit with local, territorial, and tribal leaders. He's also heading to visit Los Gatos and Atherton for campaign receptions in the afternoon and evening. Meanwhile, GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis headed to Sacramento for a fundraiser. DeSantis previously admitted to transporting several dozen migrants to Sacramento. California Governor Newsom and DeSantis have been publicly criticizing each other for some time now, with Newsom calling on DeSantis for a debate. And DeSantis responded June 15th by challenging him to a run for president. Are you going to throw your hat in the ring and challenge uh, Joe? Are you going to get in and do it, or are you just going to sit on the sidelines and chirp? So why don't you throw your hat in the ring, and then we'll go ahead and, and talk about what, what's happening. Newsom has repeatedly said that he's not interested in running for president. However, there is some speculation about the motives behind why he ran a Florida ad that he endorsed as well as policy analysts saying that um, some of his actions could be laying a groundwork for a future presidential bid. Now, President Biden and Newsom is expected to meet on Tuesday for a fundraiser. In Palo Alto, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Former President Trump is no longer allowed to speak about evidence in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. A judge today signed off on a set of restrictions. The order stems from a request by special counsel Jack Smith. Smith had requested that Trump be prohibited from talking about evidence in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart signed off on the request. That's the same judge who approved the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago last year. The restrictions also apply to co-defendant Walt Nada. The defense didn't oppose Smith's request. Coming up, Google agrees to settle a lawsuit over sharing user data with third parties. A cybersecurity expert explains how sharing data can lead to security breaches. And a majority of Americans say they are more productive when working remotely, but one in seven admit to only working for half the day. More in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. In the tech world today, Google agreed to pay a $23 million settlement. It's for a lawsuit that accuses the tech giant of sharing user data with a third party. A cybersecurity expert said sharing data could be risky business. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards finds out more. On Monday, Google decided to shell out $23 million to put a matter to rest rather than be burdened with a potentially costly lawsuit. In a class action lawsuit filed in California, Google was accused of sharing user search queries with third parties. The complaint alleged that Google has consistently and intentionally designed its services to encourage that user search queries, which often contain highly sensitive and personally identifiable information, are routinely transferred to marketers, data brokers, and sold and resold to countless other third parties. In agreeing to the settlement, Google did not admit any wrongdoing. Cybersecurity expert Scott Schober said sharing user information to third parties can expand the risk of data breach. 
one of the key areas whenever data is shared to a third party is they may not have security measures in place as the original party. Maybe it's a big tech company and you agree to their terms and services and everything else and that allows them to share to a third party. Now it goes to some unknown third party and they don't have good security measures in place. That's extremely risky for the end user then. And that's where, where a lot of these problems happen with breaches because it goes through multiple hands. Now, as you know, this is a case about Google settling a, a claim about sharing user data with third parties. But have other large companies experienced an uptick in data breaches in recent years? Yeah, it's actually a good question. And, and yes, certainly they have. I think that's important to realize. And one of the number one reasons is, think about the data. The value of data has now grown so it could be much more profitable. And it's now easier and easier for cyber criminals to sell data. They use the dark web and they have a level of anonymity there so they could easily sell this data to the highest bidder. Schober said consumer connectivity to the internet as well as a wide variety of wireless objects makes data more rich and valuable. He said there are tons of impacts after a data breach, but here's one of the important ones. Identity theft, that's very common. Once they get enough information, the culmination of information, that's what's really valuable, such as pieces of a puzzle when they put it all together. He said targeted attacks are even worse because they will go after as much money as they can. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Some Illinois parents want certain books kept out of libraries, curating what kids can see. But Illinois has a new law that bans so-called book bans, prompting some, some, some strong reactions. Let's take a look. The American Library Association reported over 1,200 challenges were received on books in 2022. The top 13 includes titles such as Gender Queer, All Boys Aren't Blue, and The Bluest Eye. The association says the requests were made over claims of sexually explicit content. Book bans are about censorship, marginalizing people, marginalizing ideas and facts. Regimes ban books, yes. not democracies. Terry Newsom, president of the Illinois chapter of U.S. Parents Involved in Education, says the Illinois law takes away parental rights. What Pritzker just did is not about freedom. He took away our freedom for us to say, hey, some of these materials are not acceptable for our children. Illinois Congresswoman Mary Miller denounced the new law. Oh, I, it's painful. It's outrageous. It would have been unthinkable a few years ago that an elected official, especially a governor would sign a bill forcing schools to provide pornographic and sexually explicit materials to our youth. However, Illinois Secretary of State has a different perspective on the issue. Parents and only parents have the right and the responsibility to restrict their children's and only their children's access to library resources. In other words, you get to decide what's right for your children, but you don't get to make that decision for anyone else's. The founder of Awake Illinois and the parent, Shannon Atcock, says she is against banning books, but restrictions should be in place for obscene material. When I was a kid, we, we went to the video store to rent videos, and there was the curtain that had a closed-off section for pornographic content. You didn't have it open. Children couldn't go in. Right, it was available, it wasn't banned, but there was a restriction and there was, there was a policy in place. 
The new law penalizes Illinois libraries for banning books. Specifically, Illinois libraries must adhere to the American Library Association's Bill of Rights, which states that books should not be removed if they expect to receive state funding from the Secretary of State's office. Some parents are also concerned about taxpayers' money being used to advance what they consider socialist ideology. They point to the head of the American Library Association, Emily Drabinsky, who once described herself as a Marxist in a since-deleted tweet. Do we really want this association to represent our community's value system? Maybe we're not in line with that. It's, it's not their money, right? I mean, it's our money. It's our tax dollars. It's our community. While parents worry that other states may follow suit, they also think the new law would feel more parents taking action against the law. The new law will go into effect on January 1st, 2024. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. Are remote workers being productive? A recent survey found that nearly three out of four remote workers are scrolling through social media during their workday and more than a third are shopping. The survey found that one in five Americans say they have taken a nap while on the clock remotely. To shed some light on whether remote work is good for productivity, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an expert on the subject. And here with me is Ira Wolf. He's recognized as one of the top five global thought leaders on future of work and HR. So a recent survey says one in seven Americans admit they only work for about three to four hours on average each day when working remotely. Now, this is significant because if you're on a team working on a project and one of your teammates aren't pulling the weight, it could delay the whole project. It could make the product of less quality. I mean, when surveys like these come out, I can imagine why company leaders want employees back in the office. You've had a lot of exposure in this area. You've talked a lot about this. So I want to ask you, what's the core problem here? Uh, I can probably I can sum it up in two words or maybe four words. You know, two is productivity paranoia, and and the other may be hybrid hysteria. Um, there was a study done last year by Microsoft, and they found that 85% of leaders said that the shift to hybrid work or remote work has made it more challenging to have confidence that their employees are actually doing being productive. So when studies like this come out, it resonates. Le- leaders and managers and and other people jump all over it. But the challenge is, and I wrote about this 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, um, and we used to call it presenteeism. It means people showed up for work, but they actually didn't, they they weren't doing what the the managers thought they were doing. So in in 2005, um, U.S. workers were were declared to, to be wasting two hours a day surfing the internet, hanging around the water cooler, spending times in meetings, looking for other jobs, shopping online. That was two, That was 20 years ago. Wouldn't there be a conflict when they're working from home to actually, you know, doing their work? Well, it also comes down to, and that's a great point, it also comes down to uh, employee well-being. Um, we, we are, you know, certainly have labor shortages these days. Um, companies can't find enough people. Uh, it looks like our economy is not going to go into recession or maybe it's going to be a really soft landing. Uh, and the, the future doesn't look very good for our labor pool. So we're, we're also going to have to take a, employers are going to have to take a fresh look is that if they are even the same, even if they have the same level of productivity, but the employee stays on the payroll, 
that they're not that they are engaged. Uh, Gallup just came out with the report um, about two weeks ago, and they identified that again, almost uh, seven or more than seven out of every ten employees are disengaged at work. One out of five are miserable. They're not very productive. If you're not engaged and you're, and you're not and you're feeling miserable, then you're not getting you know you're not giving a hundred percent of your time. I mean, that's a good point. Maybe perhaps it's it's not about whether working from home or at the office is about the individual. Are, are they a productive person? Maybe you can just comment on that. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're living in a personalized world. Everything's personalized. We go on the Internet and they know all our activity. Uh, everybody works differently. What is it that that person needs? Because there are people, by the way, uh, there's a lot of employees that want to come back to the office. But there's other people that it's much more difficult. They're very talented. They have the skills that employers need. Um, but the employers want to treat everybody as an all or none. Companies just have to, to really kind of create a blank slate, look at what's going to work, what do their employees want, where are, where are the employees that they need. And uh, again, uh, going back to t having different metrics, measuring outcomes, not hours worked. Oh, thank you so much today, Ira. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Coming up, Ukraine's counteroffensive scores another win. The nation says its forces liberated eight villages in the past two weeks. But the dam breach continues to cause damage. And the U.S. is discussing nuclear weapons with Iran once again, but carefully refraining from naming any deal. Find out why in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. Ukraine has reportedly regained control over several Russian-occupied villages. But flood water continues to wreak havoc in southern Ukraine, leaving several dead. NTD's Sam Wong has the latest details. In a video circulating online, Ukrainian soldiers held up yellow and blue national flags chanting glory to Ukraine as they declare victory over the seizure of Pietikaitki village. Today, June 18th, the forces of 128 Assault Brigade and the 2nd Separate Rifle Battalion chased out the Russians from the village of Pyarikatki. The Russians ran away, leaving equipment and ammunition. According to Ukrainian officials, this is just one of the eight villages its troops liberated in the last two weeks. The location of Pyarikatki is significant, as it lies about 56 miles from the coast. The nation's deputy defense minister said that Ukrainian forces had advanced over four miles into Russian lines. Meanwhile, death toll climbs following the breach of the Novokakovka Dam in southern Ukraine. Kyiv said that casualties have risen to 16, and Russian officials said 29 people have died in territories that Moscow controls. The Novokakovka Dam collapsed on June 6, destroying farmlands and cutting off supplies to civilians. The breach unleashed floodwaters across a large area of southern Ukraine and parts of Russian-occupied territories. According to Ukraine's Interior Ministry, more than 3,600 people have been evacuated from the flooded areas, while 31 are still missing. In the face of Russia's onslaught, Ukraine's NATO membership is still being discussed. On Monday, NATO General Jens Stoltenberg said that Ukraine would not be invited to join the alliance at a summit in mid-July. Uh, what we are discussing uh, is uh, how to move Ukraine closer to uh, NATO. 
and there are ongoing consultations and I'm not in a position to preempt the outcome of those uh, consultations. Kyiv's NATO bid has been on the table for years, but issuing its membership now could trigger an all-out war with Russia. Sam Wang, NTD News. Now we turn to the Middle East, where the U.S. is resuming talks with Iran about nuclear weapons. What could come out of this? Does Congress have a say? To find out, we spoke with Arye Lightstone, the former special envoy for the Abraham Accords. Arye Lightstone, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. There's been reports that the U.S. and Iran are in talks again, potentially over a nuclear deal. Now, over the weekend, Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu rebuked these and kind of lashed out against them. What's kind of the backstory here? Well, the backstory is is that the U.S. administration keeps chasing a deal, surrendering more and more leverage without getting anything in return. Uh, the latest story is, is that they're not even going to call it anything, because if it gets called something, it needs to be reviewed by Congress. So in this fairly despicable act, Prime Minister Netanyahu is putting down a red line which says you can't have deals that aren't even named, because then you don't even know what's in them and what's going to be quantified by them. So we're headed towards a slippery slope here. And what's led to these talks starting up again, considering that the U.S. withdrew in 2018? Yeah, well, President Biden made it very clear on day number one that he wanted to re-enter into what's known as the JCPOA, the Iran deal. Uh, the challenge is the Iranians didn't want him to re-enter. They kept pushing the goal line further and further away, no matter how much President Biden and his Iranian negotiator O'Malley kept chasing after them. It could be the move that China brokered this opportunity between Iran and Saudi that the U.S. felt compelled to re-enter the region. Now, why we would re-enter the region with Iran? as opposed to Saudi or Israel, boggles my mind. Now, we saw talks with China and Palestine recently, but what's in it for the U.S. if this Iran deal were to go through? There's nothing in this for the U.S. Uh, this is a, a capitulation, a surrender. It's a sign of weakness. Uh, and it, it will yield more dollars for an Iranian regime that is still the world's largest sponsor for terror and something that your viewers need to know Money that goes to Iran, that props up the Iran regime, not only helps the Iranian ayatollahs, but it helps Russia and it helps China directly. There is no win for the United States here. And on that note, expanding out to the region, what would this deal mean for that area? Well, it will strengthen Iran, which in turn will strengthen both Russia and China. It likely will not do anything to contain Iran's malign activities. It may, and I emphasize may, put a small pause in Iran's reckless pursuit towards the nuclear uh, capabilities. It may slow them down just slightly, but it will enable them to achieve some of their other regional goals in the meantime. Considering that this deal doesn't have a name, what can the U.S. or Israel or any country do now? Well, I think Americans need to let their legislators know that this is unacceptable. President Biden knows that this is unacceptable and won't pass any measure in Congress or the Senate, hence he's not naming it. And because he's not naming it, it won't get a congressional review that it would be required under an actual agreement. So people of good conscience and people of good mind are obligated to stand up and say this is a unnecessary capitulation. Prime Minister Netanyahu should not be the only one. Uh, sounding this alarm. 
Arya Lightstone, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. According to Pakistan, the migrant boat that capsized off the coast of Greece last week was carrying around 800 people. The Pakistani government also declared today a national day of mourning as some victims were from the country. A court in southern Greece today postponed a hearing for nine Egyptian men accused of being migrant smugglers. Witness accounts had placed the number on board at between 400 and 750 people. Greek authorities have said 104 survivors and 78 bodies have been brought ashore. Search and rescue operations are ongoing, although no survivors or bodies have been found since last week. Coming up, the highly anticipated docudrama Gender Transformation will premiere soon. NTD got a chance to speak with some of the film's special guests. And in golf news, the U.S. Open concluded yesterday with a new champion. Yet the PGA's impending merger continues to steal the headlines, though not in a good way. We'll have the latest after the break. Welcome back. The transgender movement has recently gained national attention. And the Epoch Times is releasing a new docudrama to shed light on some of the movement's untold stories. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with some of the special guests in the film. I'm here in Manhattan for the debut of an epic original docudrama. It's called Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities. It explores transgenderism among today's youth. But before the premiere started, we got a chance to speak with some of the key people in the film. On a chromosomal level, there's no way you can actually be transsexual. I mean, you can do all these changes externally, but you're never going to change what you were born to be. Dr. Catherine Welch is a physician and she participated in the film. She said that the push for changing one's gender identity is misleading to young people and it leads to deeper problems. And the fact that these, this kind of thing is being pushed so pervasive and, and normalized in our society uh, does not bode well for our civilization. And Pamela Garfield, a therapist, explained that there are LGBT groups that kids can go to to talk about having a new gender identity without their parents' knowledge. I later figured out that this is really about getting the kids sucked into this ideology, which I really think really mirrors a cult. And I really see it as dangerous and harmful, and I see it as dividing children from parents. And Erin Friday, a lawyer, was also in the film. She has a daughter who said she was transgender at the age of 13. Friday shared some of the things she did to help get her daughter out of that frame of mind. First and foremost, I took her phone, which I, I don't know of any parent who got their child back into reality without taking the internet from them. That is key, and for parents who say, I can't do that, it will be awful, you can and you must. Um, so that's issue number one. I also pulled my daughter from the public schools uh, because the teachers there were indoctrinating her. I also sent her to camps that were uh, physical camps so that she would work with her body and be tired. And so she didn't have time to, you know, ruminate about gender, gender, gender all the time. Um, 
and then I sent her to family members' uh, houses where they all knew she was a girl and they treated her as a girl and they weren't buying into any of this and it was showing how loved she is and how accepted that she is um, as a female. So those were some of the things that I did. Friday said the film really covered what it feels like to be a parent with a child caught in the gender web. And the film's director, Tobias Elbahagi, explained why he chose a docudrama instead of a documentary. Sometimes I'm, I'm bored by documentaries. Uh, it's not always been my thing, you know, because I, I feel they kind of sometimes lack that, you know, emotional impact that you want. If you have a docudrama, you, you know it's a true story, but also you can get moved by it. Be sure to check out Gender Transformation, the untold realities on Epic TV. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. Gender Transformation premieres tonight at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on EpochTV.com. Subscribers can watch it for free, while non-subscribers can subscribe for just $1 and receive two months of unlimited access. Or you can visit GenderTransformation.com to watch the first 10 minutes for free. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on the latest PGA merger drama. That's right, Tiff. Wyndham Clark may have claimed his first major championship yesterday at the U.S. Open, but the talk around golf still centers on the PGA's shocking merger news and its possible legal problems. Last Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Department of Justice had opened a review of the case specifically to see if it violates any antitrust laws. Yesterday, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal said on CBS that a hearing is possible within weeks. He said his concern is that the Saudis are taking control of an entire sport instead of just having a rival league like Liv. Meanwhile, the initial reactions of PGA players, which included a reportedly heated meeting with Commissioner Jay Monahan the day after the announcement, had died down. That is until yesterday, when former player Tom Watson, who won eight major titles in his day, penned a letter to Monaghan asking whether this deal was the only way to solve the tour's financial problems, among other questions. Watson said the questions were, quote, compounded by the hypocrisy in disregarding the moral issue. Now, the merger announcement said that the governor of the Public Investment Fund would be chairman of the new company with Monaghan as CEO. The two would then be joined on the executive committee by a pair of PGA board members. Meanwhile, a person who saw the agreement spoke to the AP and said the deal assures the PGA a controlling voting interest in the new company no matter how much the Public Investment Fund contributes financially. And in NBA news, the Phoenix Suns are finalizing a trade to acquire Bradley Beal from Washington for a package centered around Chris Paul, according to ESPN. The deal has yet to be finalized, though, as the teams are reportedly looking for another trade partner, preferably a contender, to send a 38-year-old Paul to. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, nine baseball games are on, including the high-spending yet disappointing New York Mets, who will start ace Max Scherzer against the reigning World Series champion Houston Astros. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And also in the sports world, protesters are standing up for their religion at a legendary L.A. baseball venue. The passionate faith-based gathering was attended by people from all over Southern California. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more. Thousands of Catholics and Christians protested the Dodger game on Friday night during an event where the team was honoring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. 
This protest took place after months of controversy and backlash with the baseball team inviting, disinviting, and eventually re-inviting the trans nuns group back to their Pride Night game against the San Francisco Giants. And that's why it's so offensive what these men are doing is because they take everything that these sisters and that our church does for good and they twist it and they invert it and they make fun of it and they desecrate it. Many protesters were offended by what the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence stands for. Tommy Valentine, the director of the Catholic Accountability Project, shared with us his concerns with the group mocking his religion. Our message today is that anti-Catholic bigotry has no place in baseball, and what the Dodgers are doing awarding this anti-hate group is unacceptable. On the same token, we're here to pray, we're here to show love. We don't hate the men who, who pose as fake nuns. We don't hate anybody in there. We want them to see that what they're doing is offensive, it's sacrilegious, it's blasphemous, and we can't let it stand without saying something about it. So we're here to pray, we're here to show love in contrast to the hatred that's going on inside the stadium. According to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence website, they use humor and irreverent wit to expose the forces of bigotry, complacency, and guilt that chain the human spirit. To, to express my views and pray for the Dodgers and, the, and the, the group, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And it's important that we celebrate the way God made us. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and other gay people are Welcome to celebrate who they are, but please don't do it by hating other people, expressing bigotry and hurting, assaulting other people's dignity. Although the San Francisco Giants swept the Dodgers this past weekend, we can look forward to the team's next event. The Dodgers will host a Christian Faith and Family Day at Dodger Stadium on July 30th. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. And finally, pastry is an art you can see as well as taste. That's according to French chefs who gathered in Paris this weekend for a pastry fair. They each brought their creations, unique cakes, croissants, even candies, to display to the public. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the details. 50,000 gourmets and pastry lovers were expected at a Paris fair this weekend. It featured master classes, contests, and many exhibits for tourists and residents. Many French chefs were there to feature their creations and transmit their know-how to the visitors, who could taste the pastries and learn new recipes. This pastry chef says he majored in sugar crafting. It will take hours before he finishes what he calls a giant lollipop. We're in the process of putting together an artistic piece in sugar art that will combine the cast sugar we can see with the structure that's being put together. We're getting a little closer to the work of a glassmaker on this artistic side of sugar art. In fact, what we use as glue is simply sugar. Pastry wasn't considered a craft on its own in France before the 1950s. That's when some chefs started to dedicate themselves to it fully and transmit some of their signature recipes. Like Maison Le Nôtre, a pastry school created by chefs in France in the 50s. Its booth features some of their expertly made cake. The wedding cake, then, with workmanship, finesse and elegance. You see, it's all about the purity of the wedding. That's the meaning of all the white. This award-winning chef prepared a chocolate praline croissant 15 years ago for a fair. He says there were so many people who liked it, he kept the recipe for his bakeries in Paris. For him, the success of a recipe isn't complicated. It's a question of taste. We French are fairly classic in our tastes, and it's all about balance. 
You can make poissons in different flavors. I don't see why not. As long as it's well done, everything can be very good. It usually takes three years to train as a pastry maker in France and many years to have enough experience before becoming a chef, someone who manages a team and or owns a restaurant or bakery. Pastry requires a lot of technique and you have to learn this technique. And it's very interesting to make a beautiful Viennese-style pastry because it's living dough. You have to adapt constantly, constantly. You have to adapt to the product. So you need a lot of technique and professionalism. The pastry industry does over a billion dollars in business annually in France. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.